Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List Special Edition, a production of the American Forces Radio Network, because great leaders never stop learning. I'm your host, George Maurer. Now, the normal operating mode of this podcast is to feature books from command reading lists of top DOD leaders, but sometimes you just run across a book which may not be any on any of those lists, but it's just so interesting, you just have to say yes. And I suppose that's uh, one of the leadership lessons today. Don't be afraid to step outside your normal boundaries when a genuine opportunity presents itself. In this special edition, I'm featuring Dr. Richard Parker, author of a very creative book titled Leadership Lessons from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And according to Amazon Prime Video, This cult classic comedy from the Monty Python team loosely follows the legend of King Arthur along with his squire and his Knights of the Round Table as they embark on a fearless quest in search of the elusive Holy Grail, a hysterical, historical tour de force. Dr. Parker, thank you for joining me today. And what inspired you to write a book about leadership from one of the all-time great classic silly comedy movies? Thanks for having me today, George. Uh, I tell you, the the inspiration for this book came from one scene in particular in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I had seen the movie when I was 17 and was a little baffled uh, how it ended and and some of the things about it. It was one of those films I I thought I'd watch only once and it ended up... uh, being in the repertoire and, and in the VHS and then later DVD collection, but it was that that scene from with King Arthur and Dennis the Peasant, uh, where he encounters him and Dennis the Peasant does not want to accept his authority and goes on this rant about strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords as no basis for a system of government. <laughs> and he's right, by the way. <laughs> exactly. As in, you know, I as a graduate student who was progressing in toward a uh, um, a professorship and whatnot, and I was considering the classes that I, w- I would be teaching in the future. I uh, wondered, you know, could I somehow incorporate this notion of supreme executive power deriving from a mandate from the masses? Uh, and you know, I was able to incorporate that uh, in, into classes that I, I began to taught. But as I as I moved along through uh, my career, I started incorporating more and more lessons uh, from from the movie, and it, it turned out that. Uh, re- Around the time where I found I had about 11 or 12 uh, scenes from Monty Python and the Holy Grail that I was able to relate back to things we were studying in, in classes, both at the graduate and the undergraduate level, I said, I think I've got enough here for a book. And so about 10 years ago, I started writing it and uh, managed to find a publisher and who, who loved the book, thought it was a great thing. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. A brilliant idea, in my opinion. A little background on you. You were doing pretty well for yourself as a university professor. And then at the age of 40, you decided to join the Navy. First of all, I thought the cutoff for joining the Navy was 35. And apparently you found a loophole. But what in the world inspired you to make such a drastic change in your life? Oh, sure. It's a great question. And actually, to set the record straight, I I joined at 43, not 40. The Navy Reserve had a cutoff at 42 for uh, direct commission officers. And I uh, was applying to be a a public affairs officer and uh, actually was selected when I was 42, but got commissioned only a couple of weeks after I turned 43. So 
thankfully I'm, I got in and I'm very happy to be a part of the Navy Reserve doing what I do now. But to go back to your question, right before I turned 40, a couple of months, I was uh, serving as a department chairman at the university where I was teaching in North Carolina and had been sponsored by a gentleman by the name of Admiral Hal Pittman, who uh, was a communication director for, uh, for CENTCOM for uh, General Petraeus at the time. And he uh, knew I, I was interested in uh, seeing what goes on aboard an aircraft carrier. So he sponsored me for a distinguished visitor embark out to the USS Harry S. Truman. February of 2010, I uh, hopped aboard a C-2 Greyhound, cod as they call them in the Navy, and flew from a Naval Station Norfolk out somewhere in the North Atlantic with some other civilians. And we spent 24 hours aboard the Harry S. Truman. And while I was out there, I was just overwhelmed by the the energy, the enthusiasm, just the whole esprit de corps of, of the men and women aboard that ship. They were doing backbreaking work under really uh, difficult conditions in some circumstances, and they loved it. I mean, these these sailors were the same age as my students doing hard work, but yet they weren't complaining. I mean, my students back at, in, in college were, you know, they, they'd cry every time I gave them a homework assignment. <laughs> yet here you had these, these uh, young men and women who were out there 24-7 doing some really awesome work. And I thought to myself, this would be awesome to be a part of this. So after about six months after I, I did that embark, uh, my mother, who had been uh, suffering from a liver disease for a long time, passed away. And oh, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you. Um. But she was six weeks shy of her 68th birthday. And I, I said to myself, you know, I don't want to hit 70 with a bunch of regrets hanging over my head. And I knew that the biggest regret was if I didn't at least try to join in some way, shape or form. So I, I applied to the Navy Reserve for a direct commission and uh, it took me four tries, but eventually I, I got in. I can certainly back up your thoughts on aircraft carriers. As an Air Force member, I was offered and took the opportunity to make an arrested landing on the George Washington. While there, I watched how they do things, and it is truly inspiring, and that's a great word for it, uh, concerning the work they do there. Now, from the moment I saw the title of your book, I knew this interview was going to be a lot of fun, so why don't we go ahead and just get started. Terrific. Leadership tip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Don't let distractions sidetrack your goals. The Coconuts and Swallows scene. We open in England, 932 AD. We hear in the distance a horse approaching and through the mist, we soon see King Arthur and his servant Patsy and neither are riding a horse. It's actually Patsy hitting two halves of a coconut shell together as they pretend to ride a horse. They arrive at a castle and Arthur announces himself as the king of all England and wants to recruit the castle's master to join his court. But as the guard looks down from the formidable wall, he's not interested in the fact that he's talking to the king or in answering his questions. He fixates on the coconut shells and how such a tropical fruit might arrive or end up in England. One theory they start throwing around, the coconut was carried to England by a swallow or perhaps two swallows working together. Eventually, Arthur gets frustrated and just leaves, never having spoken directly to the master of the castle. Dr. Parker, how do distractions stop us from achieving our goals? 
Well, it's a, it's a great question. And you know, the uh, scene with the coconuts and the swallows was probably the most referenced that I used in the MBA class I taught on leadership communication for a number of years. Simple fact of the matter is when you go into meetings, you get distracted and you don't have to get distracted. But I would say, you know, almost everybody has been in a meeting. We had one thing we needed to do in that meeting and then somebody got off on a tangent and the next thing you know, your time is up in the meeting and you didn't get what you wanted to get accomplished done because somebody ended up wanting to know how a, a five ounce bird <laughs> could carry a one pound coconut. Now, is it true that a swallow, do, have you ever done the research, does a swallow actually beat his wings 43 times per second to maintain airspeed velocity? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty I, fast. I, I think that's a question for a zoologist. My PhD is in mass okay. communication. All right. The leadership lesson from the scene of the coconuts and the swallows. Don't get sidetracked from your main goals by unimportant distractions. Leadership tip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Don't deliver something before it's ready. The Undertaker scene. We have a depressing village, and when I say depressing, I mean depressing. Everything is wet and muddy, and I'm sure plenty of that mud isn't really mud at all. And one can only imagine the smells that are wafting through that particular area at the moment. And we see and hear human misery everywhere. We have an undertaker clanging a bell and calling out, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. Then a villager carries out an old man over his shoulder for the dead body cart, except there's one problem. The old man is not quite dead. And the ever vigilant undertaker notes the old man is still alive since he's talking, insists he's happy and would like to go for a walk. But the villager insists he is dead, or at least will be, in a few short moments. Then the villager and the undertaker face a dilemma. The villager obviously has a tight schedule and doesn't really have the time to hang around and wait for the old man to pass. But the undertaker can't take him right now because it's against regulations to put a live person on the dead body cart. So the undertaker helps the villager out. What happens next, Dr. Parker, and what's the lesson? Well, uh, as you said, tight schedules are to be kept, but the old man is not ready to go, so the undertaker knocks him on the head. <laughs> he's thanked by the villager, dumped in the cart, the old man is, and he's off to go see the Robinsons, who <laughs> lost nine already today. A bad day for the Robinsons, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. The, uh, the, the lesson there is don't deliver something before it's ready to go. Now, I had a student one time who was delivering a paper to me and he, it wasn't ready for him to be delivered, but he'd run up on his deadline and he, you know, he, he wanted to have extra time. I couldn't give him any extra time. You know, we were at the end of the semester and he needed to, uh, he needed to get that in so I could get him a final grade. And he understood that there was a penalty of one letter grade per day that it was, that it was late. And he chose to take that penalty because he said he didn't want to have to deliver me a, a paper that was half finished. Well, the problem with that was he knew six weeks in advance that paper was due. Right. So coming to me the day before and saying, oh yeah, I need more time. This isn't ready. Let me have this more time so I can get this done. Really wasn't a good way to go. He should have been better prepared for that. So he, he goes and he delivers me this paper and it's, it wasn't ready to go. 
he didn't meet the deadline. And so it ended up, he got a lower grade. He could have done better, but he chose, uh, he chose not to follow the procedure and ended up in a less than favorable situation when it came down to his final grade. I see. So, so unlike the undertaker who was willing to, to bend the rules a bit by knocking out the old man, you were unwilling to get creative with the rules. Well, yeah, I mean, think about it this way, George. I mean, procrastination, it's its the enemy of, of good efficiency. You know, the, there was this whole advertising campaign from the Gallo Wine Company back in the 70s that said, we will sell no wine before it's time. So if you imagine the vintners in Bordeaux in France are selling the world's most expensive wines, you know, if they bottled it and sent it to you before it was ready, would you really want to pay $400 a bottle for it? I, I, I would hope not. I don't want to pay $400 for any bottle of wine. Yeah, that's probably a smart move. (laughs) Well, I have to admit, when I was a young man, I was definitely a bit of a procrastinator myself. So it's kind of hard for me to criticize your young student. Well, you know, I I appreciate him wanting to turn in a good product and whatnot, but, you know, he should have understood the fact that, you know, there are deadlines in the world. You know, uh, if you miss the flight, if you were five, 10 minutes late when they closed the door at at JFK or LaGuardia to get a flight somewhere, they're not going to open it back up for you. No, they will not. So the lesson from the Undertaker scene Don't try to deliver something before it's ready. Leadership tip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Know when to quit. The lesson of the Black Knight. As Arthur and his Patsy, Patsy, clomp their way through the forest, they come upon two knights battling next to a bridge. One of the knights is the Black Knight, who isn't afraid of kicking his opponent in his private parts, by the way. Uh, (laughs) But he eventually triumphs, impressing King Arthur, who then tries to enlist the Black Knight for his court. But the Black Knight is not interested. So when Arthur accepts his refusal and attempts to cross the bridge, we learn the true mission of the Black Knight when he declares none shall pass. Arthur and the Black Knight then fight, and Arthur proves himself to be a very capable swordsman and cuts off both arms of his opponent. And when Arthur declares victory, because the Black Knight has no arms left, the Black Knight denies the obvious and retorts, "'Tis but a scratch, just a flesh wound," a phrase my teen friends and I used to use often. (laughs) The Black Knight continues fighting even when he has obviously been defeated, eventually losing both legs as well. The Black Knight just did not know when to quit, did he, Dr. Parker? Uh, No, and that's the lesson from that, that scene in the movie, know when to quit. Now, something you referenced in that chapter, Sun Tzu's Art of War, the ancient Chinese general. And in his book, he has something called the five dangerous faults of leadership. The Black Knight certainly is guilty of some, if not all of these. Perhaps the most obvious, if one is reckless, one can be killed. How does that apply to this scene? Well, it's interesting because the Black Knight is, is, he's reckless, but he's not killed. That's the thing. You know, he he manages to survive. However, I think, you know, the last we see of the Black Knight is 
He is left in the forest as Arthur and Patsy ride off as a limbless stump, and he's got no way to survive. So he's probably going to die a much horrible death than what he would have if Arthur had just finished him off. I think what's more important than if he can be reckless, he can be killed, is another one of, of Sun Tzu's dangerous faults, and that is if he has too delicate a sense of honor, he is liable to fall into a trap because of an insult. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, Arthur calls him a loony at one point, and he just continues just to be belligerent, and and you know he he he's quick tempered. That's another one of of these dangerous faults Sun Tzu has. He can provoke himself to rage, and he makes a fool of himself. So it, it's not so much that you know he's he's reckless. Of course, we've seen before Arthur even engages him that you know he's able to vanquish foes who want to try to cross that bridge. These not wanting anyone to pass over, but he's got too delicate of a sense of honor and he's absolutely quick tempered. And so those faults combined with the fact that, you know, he becomes unbalanced in this scene with Arthur leads to his ultimate demise. And the final thing the Black Knight yells at Arthur with no arms and no legs was that he was going to bite his legs off. Yeah, come back here and fight. I'll bite your legs off. That's right. The, the, yeah, the, the thing is, it goes back to the lesson again. No one to quit. If certain people had known when to quit throughout history, they would not have encountered a lot of the disasters which, which befell them. Leadership tip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Change can keep you relevant, but it can also make you obsolete. The lesson of the knights who say me. Now, by this time in the film, Arthur has an entire team of knights, and they're traveling through a mysterious forest, and they come upon a group of knights who they've been told through legend are terrible and horrifying. Few who meet them live to tell the tale. And this all appears to be true when the knights who say knee demand a sacrifice and they will say knee as a weapon until their demands are met. Of course, your imagination begins running wild on what that sacrifice might be. Arthur and his knights, they cower and grimace at each knee until they beg for mercy. And then the knights who say knee state their demands. They seek a shrubbery, one that looks nice and is not too expensive. <laughs> Mighty polite of them. Arthur then leaves and gets a fine shrubbery, especially the laurel bushes. But then the knights who say knee throw Arthur a curveball. They've now evolved into the knights who say icky, 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 patang zuboing, and they make further demands. In the end, Arthur defeats them by using the word it as a weapon. Now, when the knights in the forest are known as the knights who say knee, Arthur and his team are terrified and ready to do anything to appease them. But as the knights who say icky, 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 patang zuboing, They've lost their edge. Nobody takes them serious. Growth and change can be good, but it can also be bad. Correct? Well, actually, you've uh, touched on two chapters, George. There's the lesson. Yep. There's the lesson of the knights who say knee. And then there's the lesson of the knights who no longer say knee. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> as, as Arthur addresses them at one point. Yeah. The lesson of the knights who say knee 
is actually a very good one in the fact that um, perceptions can be wrong. And sometimes we tend to overact to things we don't completely understand. Yeah, so Arthur has overreacted to these knights being terrifying and, and whatnot, and he's willing to go do anything uh, that they want. And we find out later they're just they're not that they're not that frightening. But we we often have these perceptions that we have a hard time getting over, and we think, oh, this is just the worst thing ever. And then it takes some experience to realize that it's not so bad. I'll give you a case in point. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the pleasure, and it, it turned out to be a very distinct pleasure, of going to Guam for about six weeks. And all I had heard about before I went to Guam was the fact that there were brown tree snakes all over the island. It was just in, it was just infested. Well, I, I spent six weeks on the island of Guam. I didn't see a single snake the entire time I was there. <laughs> it was gorgeous. The people are the, among the friendliest people that I've ever met. I love Guam, and I would I would go back to Guam in a heartbeat. Anderson is a beautiful base. People down at, at the naval base on the southern part of the island are very are wonderful people. They're very friendly, and I just I had a fantastic time on Guam. I really, really did. And so my perception of Guam before I got there was completely wrong, and so it, it kind of reflected that whole lesson that, that our perceptions can kind of cloud our judgments and, and things may not be what they think they are. Our imaginations can get the best of us at times. Yes, they can. Abs- absolutely. And, you know, there, you know, it wasn't like I, I would come home and uh, for, from a day working at Joint Region Marianas and open my door and, and find the, the Airbnb I was staying at just filled with snakes like in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indiana Jones is trying to get the Ark of the Covenant. No, not at all. I mean, it was... It was fantastic. But the, the second lesson that, that we pull from your discussion of the Knights Who Say Me is, is it is about change. And it is about changing your, your identity because people do want to, they want to remake themselves. You know, we, we hear this word transition quite a bit, but you have to be very careful on, on how you change your identity because if you don't change it properly, other people may not take you seriously. I, I use in the, the book this example of Brett Favre, the NFL quarterback, when, when he retired from the Green Bay Packers in 2008, and we all thought, okay, he's done. But then he comes back and he says, oh, I'm, I'm going to play again. And he goes and he plays for the New York Jets. And we're like, okay, he's playing for the Jets now, but then he retires again and he says, oh, I'm done, I'm retired. But then he comes back and says, I'm going to play for the Minnesota Vikings. And at that Even point, more horrifying to Packer fans, the Vikings, yes. <laughs> right, exactly. And and I just, I just, I sat there when he, when he announced he was playing for Minnesota, I said, okay, yes, yeah, so who are you going to, who are you going to play for next year after you retire again? It, he became the boy who cried wolf in essence. And, and so, you know, People try to make these changes. I mean, if you want to think about a, a change that went disastrously, just think about New Coke. Uh, you know, you, you got to go back to 1985 for that debacle, but it was it was a change that no one took seriously, and it, and it ended up being a huge embarrassment for Coca-Cola. And they managed to survive by going back to Coke Classic, as they called it for a long time. I think they're back to calling it just Coke now. I think they've dropped a classic moniker. I could be wrong. But. I think you're right. And, you know, if, if the Knights Who Said Knee had, had not gone through this whole silliness of changing their name and, you know, making other demands, it, they probably could have maintained this aura of terror, I guess is the best word for it, that they had. But overall, we see they're not all they're cracked up to be. And in the end, you know, nobody takes them seriously. We live in a world that just evolves at an incredible pace. 
You know, I, I've seen things that say if you live from 1000 BC to 1000 AD, your life was virtually the same. It didn't change at all. And today we live in a world where our lives are drastically different than our parents and even our, even more than our grandparents. How, how does one keep up in such a world without becoming irrelevant? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if I have the answer to that. I, I consider myself to be an artifact of the 20th century, to be quite honest. You know, I, I was at breakfast this morning and in the hotel I'm, I'm staying at in Colorado right now. And this young girl, probably about you know eight or nine years old, came up to me at breakfast and asked if it was okay if she changed the TV channel. And I said, "Yeah, sure, uh, not no problem." I wasn't paying attention to it anyway. I didn't know what she was going to ch- turn it to, but I was I almost fell out of my chair when she turned it to Little House on the Prairie, the old <laughs> Michael Landon show from the nineteen seventies. I thought, "Wow, I, I was that was the last thing I was expecting this young girl to do." And she was with you know five or six other kids, and they they were all glued to the TV. They wanted to know what was going to happen on Little House on the Prairie. So, I mean, yeah, that we, we see in, in history and we see throughout the world that, you know, things are, are, are cyclical. They, 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 they tend to come back around. You know, bell bottoms went out of fashion in the late 70s, but in the mid-2000s, they came back in again. I'm, I'm waiting for parachute pants to come back in. You know, the, <laughs> I think I've got an old pair I can eBay to someone for $60 or something like that. But the simple fact of the matter is we, we can change quite a bit and we can offer change in, in things. But the one thing about change and keeping up with it is to remember that, that change is, is well, it, it's, it's not a constant. I mean, it, it, things are always going to change, but you can make a change, but that change isn't going to be permanent. Somebody somewhere along the line is is gonna is gonna change it back. I just finished reading Admiral James Stavridis's book, Sailing True North, where he talked about his time as the uh, combatant commander at, at U.S. Southern Command, and how he instituted all these transitions and changes and and whatnot. And then when he left to become the commander at NATO, all the changes he put in place went away. Someone else changed them. So you know, I think the key in order to to keep up with the change is probably know yourself sure know your limits you know don't yeah you know, be like don't be like the black knight know when to quit and and know where you can best fit in when a change happens and by the way i believe little house on the prairie is still airing on a channel called me tv and i know that because i love me tv i'm a bit of a bit of a, an art, you know, a, a relic of the 20th century myself. I, I have my DVR program to record Hogan's Heroes and MASH. Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. MASH off of <laughs> Me TV, And I do believe every once in a while I'll catch the end of a Little House on the Prairie episode before my program begins. Yeah, I'm a big Me TV person also. So, you know, I'm, I'm glued there, you know, every night when Hogan's Heroes comes on, my wife tolerates it. I'm grateful for that. <laughs> The leadership lesson from the knights who say knee, change can keep you relevant, but it will also make you obsolete if you're not careful. Leadership tip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Listen when others share warnings. The wisdom of Tim the Enchanter. When Arthur and his knights meet Tim, he is aware of their quest and says he can lead them to the Holy Grail, which is located in a cave, but there's only one problem. 
The cave entrance is guarded by a lethal and foul creature who kills every man who dare does battle with it. The bones of 50 men litter the entrance, and when the creature turns out to be a little white bunny rabbit, Arthur no longer takes Tim's warnings seriously. The group then mocks Tim for his obviously bad advice, and even after the bunny decapitates one night, Arthur and his team are still not completely convinced of the rabbit's lethality and make a foolish charge at the bunny, who slaughters several more men until Arthur finally accepts defeat and gives the order to run away, run away, run away. Dr. Parker, what do we take from this? Well, you hit on my uh, what's turned out to be my favorite chapter in the book. Um, you know, I, what I... When I wrote it, I was, you know, all fixated on on Dennis the peasant and you know the whole notion of of where leadership derives from. But yeah, as as I've gone through and and have have taught the lessons in the book over time and whatnot, Tim the Enchanter is is by far I think my favorite lesson, and that is listen to the experts when they have things to tell you. Arthur and his knights they go into a situation where. They're they're the outsiders. They obviously have no idea what's going on there. And they're presented with all this physical evidence. I mean, the bones of 50 men lay strewn about the ground. <laughs> and uh they, you know, they think it's just a harmless little bunny that's uh right. that's, you know, they can just, you know, chop its head off, make it a stew. Well, no, that's that's not the case. They've ignored the evidence that's in front of them, they've failed to listen to the expert that's on the situation, and they pay for it, not just in the terms of life, but also in the terms of resources. Because in order to kill the rabbit, they've got to expend the holy hand grenade of Antioch. And I'm gonna bet serious money here that there was only one holy hand grenade of Antioch. Yeah, that's another famous scene from the movie. Brother Maynard says, pull the pin and count to three, not two, not four, not five. Count to three as he repeats over and over again. And then, of course, right. Arthur counts one, two, five <laughs> before throwing before throwing the holy hand grenade. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know, there's a, there's an historical precedent. You know, I talk about a couple in the book, but there's historical precedent with regard to not listening to, to the experts when they try to tell you there's a problem. There was an engineer by the name of Roger Beaujolais who worked at the Morton Thiokol Corporation in the 1980s, who in the summer of 1985 sent a memo to his bosses saying there is a problem with the O-ring seals on the solid rocket boosters of the space shuttle. And if we don't fix this, then the cost will be of the highest order, the loss of human life. He put this in writing the night before the Challenger was to launch in January of, of 1986. Roger Beaujolais and a number of other people from Morton Thiokol were on a conference call at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And they were having a very long running argument on whether or not the shuttle should launch the next morning. And there was pressure put on Morton Thiokol that, hey, if you don't play ball, you know, we may find someone else as a contractor to, to build these solid rocket boosters. And, you know, people were told you need to be loyal to the company and, and whatnot. And the engineers were not listened to. And then the next morning, 73 seconds into the launch on live television, the shuttle blew up and we lost seven astronauts that way. Later, during the investigation, that memo leaked out that Roger Beaujolais had written in 1985, warning 
hey, we got to fix this problem. Otherwise, we're going to have an even bigger problem. So the failure to listen to experts, the, the SMEs, the subject matter experts as, we, as, as they're known, it can be a, just an incredibly, incredibly high and tragic cost if we don't do it. So even if you don't recognize the evidence, even if it's not something that's familiar to you, if you've got someone there who seems to know what they're doing, it, it's critically important for leaders to understand and to give these these SMEs, these subject matter experts, an opportunity to to present their side of the story before making a decision that could end up uh, just ending very badly. If nothing else, just for a moment, consider what if oh, yeah. they're correct, you know, at least open your mind to that possibility. And one can only imagine the burden that those folks who made the decision to, to launch anyway carry absolutely for the rest of their lives. They'll never forget that moment and they'll always carry the burden of the lives of those astronauts. Just tragic. Yeah, Roger Beaujolais came to Western Kentucky when I was on faculty there and, and spoke, and he always ended his talks by reading the names of the seven astronauts who died on, on Challenger. And he could not get through the reading of that list without shedding tears. I mean, I, the, the man really carried that burden. He, he felt personally responsible for it for a long time, even though it, it was not his fault. Sad. The lesson from Tim the Enchanter, listen when others share warnings. Leadership tip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Conflict can be negative or positive. The moral of the French knights. Arthur and his last living knight arrive at the castle. And finally, they found the location of the Holy Grail, but it's been a deadly journey for the knights. And... The castle is occupied by a group of French knights who they had a conflict with earlier in the movie. The French knights begin throwing insults at Arthur. You cheesy lot of secondhand electric donkey bottom biters and you tiny brained wipers of other people's bottoms. Of course, there's obscene hand gestures and the usual, you know, they, they, they leave no stone unturned. Now, when the knights, when the French knights begin dumping garbage and who knows what on Arthur, Arthur decides to walk away and just ignore them. But then his emotions get the best of him and he orders an attack. Suddenly, an entire army appears out of nowhere and they charge on Arthur's orders. Then a modern police car stops in front of them and disrupts the charge. That's where the movie ends. Abruptly, suddenly, with no credits, just some silly organ music and a black screen. No one has ever accused Monty Python of being conventional. So, Dr. Parker, what did we learn from the conflict between Arthur and the French Knights? And what kind of an ending is that for a movie? Well, you know, the, the lesson there is that, you know, conflict... It, it's unavoidable. No matter what happens in life, you're going to have some conflict. You know, whether or not it's about who gets the parking space underneath the shady tree, or you know, if if someone has decided to take the last donut out of the out of the box that you were hoping for, something very minor like that. To, to <laughs> that's an act worthy of fight. Oh, sure. I, I I do I do agree. That. Well, especially if you know if it's something like a honey cruller from Tim Hortons or something. <laughs> but yeah. Conflict is, it's, it's a fact of life, but it doesn't necessarily have to become a way of life. 
You know, one of the things that the leaders need to understand is that, you know, confrontation doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. Confrontation, actually, uh, the, the root of that word comes from Latin. It, it basically means having a face-to-face discussion with someone. And so, you know, there are positive conflicts and there are negative conflicts where we, you know, try to improve things. We try to have these discussions, these deliberations, and then there are negative conflicts, which are very destructive, and they, they end up causing, you know, damage to property, loss of life, injury, uh, loss of reputation, things of that nature. But the simple fact is that that even though you know we we have conflict, how we address that conflict and how we can kind of work the conflicts to our benefit in in some ways is important to understand. It doesn't always have to necessarily be the situation where it's going to be unpleasant or it's going to be nasty. Yes, you're going to have a lot of that, but it doesn't have to be that way 100% of the time. Anyone who has studied leadership or paid attention during a conflict with another person, you're absolutely right. Conflict can be a very good thing. Now, one thing you didn't address in your answer, and this is something you directly addressed in your book, what kind of an ending is that for a movie? You're right. And, and I was left baffled. Like, this is it. I mean, really, there are many situations where, you know, we have disappointing endings, but they don't have to be disappointing. Yeah, the end of that movie is disappointing. I just even I watch it now. I ignore the end of it. But, I, you know, if I were to sit there and just kind of take it in, kind of drink it out, I'd still be disappointed because I want a conclusion. I want to see these guys get the Holy Grail or I want to see something else happen apart from the way they wrote the ending of that film. But, you know, the thing is that we can take the time, we can do our due diligence if we really, really want to uh, about making a good ending on things. Uh, if you think about retirement speeches, for instance, you know, there are, I've, I've been to enough retirement ceremonies now to where I, I've seen people put a great end to their careers by, by giving a speech that acknowledges the important people in, in a career that, that helped them get there and thanks their family and, and pretty much brings closure to a, a situation. And, you know, you have these opportunities in, in life to, to get some closure at a lot of levels that make for a satisfying wrap up. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a major event. You can get a, a good closure to something and, and something minor, you know, like, like finishing up a, a fitness report or, or um, cooking a good meal for someone the, but you know, we can, if we do our due diligence, if we take the time to think about what it is we really want to, to accomplish. And if we put forth that effort, we can have better endings. Dr. Richard Parker author of Leadership Lessons from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And we've covered about half of the material in the book here today, so plenty more where that came from if you want to pick up a copy and have a read for yourself. Very fun interview, Dr. Parker. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me today, George. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm very happy you enjoyed my book. And thank you for listening to The Leadership List, Special Edition, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and always remember, great leaders never stop learning. (laughs) 
The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants, Dave Beesing, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott. Thank you.